The music teacher says it was consensual sex. His former students say it was rape. He had sex with me once in the classroom, um, in a closet. Something happened to me, too. I thought he was our little predator. Why wasn't he stopped? These women seek answers and justice. I'm Julie Ireton, host of a new podcast, The Band Teacher. It's available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Just that somebody could be this diabolical. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I need to warn you. This episode discusses self-harm and intimate partner violence. If you're experiencing intimate partner violence, or if you have a loved one who is, you can find information on where to turn for help at cbc.ca slash WTP resources. Please take care. I remember a beautiful, carefree autumn day in Ottawa. It's been a few years since I left Pat. I'm living in the nation's capital. My career is thriving. I've made new friends. I live in a cool part of town along the Rideau Canal. And on this beautiful day, I'm riding my bike as fast as I can on the trail along that canal. When the gears slip, my shin rams into metal. My first, my immediate thought was, damn, I'm going to have a bruise. I'm going to have to wear a long skirt Mm -hmm. till it's gone. And then I stopped myself and I said, no, you you don't have to. It's okay. No one's going to go, oh, you have a bruise on your leg. Somebody beat you up. And I kind of shocked myself that that was my first Mm -hmm. go-to reaction. I'm going to have to cover that. first survival instinct was to hide. Yeah. Don't let anyone know you have a bruise. Mm -hmm. But it was, you know, it was what, maybe six years after I'd left. That's the long tail. The long tail. The way in which the abuse clung to me. It was always with me. I could feel it. But it took years for me to realize what it was. It appeared as that instinct to hide bruises. It made me recoil on massage tables. Couldn't handle anyone touching my neck. I remember running my first and only marathon. It wrecked my knees. I went to a physiotherapist. Your left leg is a little different from your right. Were you ever in an accident? No. But someone beat me up and kicked that leg a lot. Could that be it? He looked at me funny. Yeah, that would explain it. Now that made me mad. Seriously? He's why my leg hurts after all these years? I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. This is Welcome to Paradise. I've been thinking about where that long tale of trauma began. It started back in Fredericton with my plans to kill myself. 
How did you um, understand the suicidal thoughts back then? I was a mess. I felt very much like there was no place for me. I felt this just this darkness. There was a semicircular driveway through the trees that led to the house in the woods where I'd lived with Pat and his mother. I'd picture him pulling up to the house to find me hanging from a tree in my wedding dress. Or maybe lying inside in the dress, bleeding out on our bed. I think it was almost like a revenge thing. Mm-hmm. And so it was a combination of I didn't want to live and it, a combination of I want him to know what he's done. And, um, but it, it was like, I have so much pain and I want him to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted him to find me. I wanted him to find me dead. And then, and then what would happen in your fantasies after he found you? He would feel bad. I wanted him to feel bad. I wanted him to feel bad. And somewhere along the line, I realized that maybe he wouldn't. As much as I fantasized about it, I never made an actual suicide attempt. The irony is that my life may well have been in more danger than I understood. Pat had threatened to kill me if I didn't leave. I didn't believe he could do that. But in the months after we separated, something shifted. My first apartment was just a short drive away from that house in the woods, above a little grocery store. The door had one flimsy lock. One night I dreamed Pat was there, knocking, trying to get in. He'd brought Casey, our Irish setter. I heard what sounded like the dog jumping against the door his claws scraping the wood. I opened my eyes, listening in the dark. Nothing. I rolled over and fell back asleep. The next morning as I was leaving, locking the door from the outside, I saw them. Scratch marks in the wood at about my eye level. I didn't know what to make of it then. What do you make of it now? Um, I find that really frightening. Um, at the time, I found it confusing. But then when I thought about it later, it really frightened me. That was something that made me think more seriously that I could be in danger. By then I was working at CBC and I was doing the morning show. So I would get up in the dark, 4.30 in the morning, whatever time it was. And there's nobody outside. Mm -hmm. Everybody's fast asleep. If anybody is waiting for you by your car, they're not going to hear, no one's going to hear you. And I remember I would come out of my apartment and go down the stairs and, you know, jump into my car, look around and drive up the hill to the CBC. That's a lot of tension to hold. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At the time, I'm not aware that women in abusive relationships are most vulnerable in that period just after they leave. And so, even though I'm on edge, I'm mostly numb. 
I see no purpose in my life. Well, my private life. Professionally, I've started doing really well. I've been at CBC for a few months now. The job I interviewed for with Pat's fingerprints on my neck. My career is on track and I'm rebuilding my life around that. It's the one thing that actually feels good. For months, Pat refuses to let me back into that house in the woods to get my things. When he finally does, it's when he's going out of town to accept a human rights award for his reporting. In the meantime, I just don't know what to do. Eventually, I find a lawyer. Sitting in her office is like being inside the pages of a magazine. And she is the picture of calm sophistication, stylish, with raven hair. She can't be more than 10 years older than me, but she's a commanding presence, a woman who doesn't apologize for who she is. I blurt out my story. She listens kindly. If you don't want to wait three years for a divorce, she says, that was the law in the early 80s. You have all the grounds to get one right now. But I'm hesitant. It means I'll have to list the details of the abuse for the court. I'm overwhelmed by the idea of sharing what's been so secret, of letting everyone know what he's done to me. On top of that, it's all so final. I wouldn't want to regret a divorce, I tell myself. I live in this limbo for months. I call him a few times, hoping to talk. Every time, he shuts me down. There's nothing to talk about, he says. Some days, I catch sightings. His car going down the hill by the radio station. The dog's familiar red face poking out the window. It always makes me sad and anxious. And then one day, the phone rings. He wants to talk. We meet for coffee. My stomach churns as I sit, waiting. He comes in. He's different somehow. Not as nonchalant, maybe. I realize he's nervous, too. He leans over the table, talking in that hypnotic broadcast voice of his. He's telling me he wants to try again. This is, this is what I've been dreaming of. This is fantastic, isn't it? If we're going to be together again, I say, you have to get therapy. I can tell that takes him by surprise. It sort of takes me by surprise too. It just comes out. We agree to talk again in a week. But then for a week, I had a splitting headache. I couldn't get rid of it, and I never had headaches. It's frustration, Well, I was thinking about...
I was thinking about going back, you see, and, and I was... I'm only now telling my father about that long week of uncertainty. And I was thinking, and I thought, you know, you didn't know the first time. You know, but you go back, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, what, are you going to have kids with this man? Yeah. If yeah. he beats those kids up, yeah. you knew, you know that he's capable of, oh, yeah. of hurting people. Mm-hmm. How can you do that? And as all this is swirling in my head, I dare to picture myself in a happier life. I tell myself I can have some control over my own life. Such a simple concept, and yet I've never thought about it like that before. So, no, I'm not going to try to make it work. I don't get a chance to tell Pat that. He calls me first, says he's changed his mind. And that's it. It's over. I'm relieved. But underneath, there's a sting of rejection. Even he, this violent man, wants nothing to do with me. I call my lawyer back. Remember me? You said you'd take my divorce case when I'm ready? Well, I'm ready. Around the world, more than 80 women have accused Peter Nygaard of crimes ranging from rape to sex trafficking. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. He exceeds anything that I think our world has seen so far. A pattern of predatory behavior spanning half a century. Nygaard denies it all, but now he faces criminal charges. If this were a poor man, he would have been in jail decades ago. He is hid in plain sight. Evil by Design, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay just saw that the mailman came. This is the document I was hoping to get. Somewhere in all my decades of moving around, I have misplaced my divorce papers. Registration of divorce. So I sent away for a copy. Marital offense. Alleged grounds. Huh. Okay, uh, and they have marked off physical cruelty and mental cruelty. Okay, a bunch of different papers. Affidavit, I do not remember this. I do not remember an affidavit. I, Sandra Church of the city of Edmonton. I'd completely forgotten that Pat's friend Sandy had written a sworn statement for my divorce hearing. I observed bruises on the petitioner's upper arm. On or about the fourth day of September, 1981, I spoke with the respondent by telephone, at which time he advised me that if his wife, Anna Maria Tremonti, continued to stay at the residence, he would be driven to murder. At that time, the said Anna Maria Tremonti was crying and upset and made arrangements with me to visit myself and my husband at our residence, that upon her arrival at my residence in Halifax, said Anna Maria Tremonti was tired, confused, and cried continuously. Hmm. Wow. 
By the time of the divorce hearing, I've been in the Fredericton courthouse a lot, reporting on trials. But this day feels different. I feel different. I'm sitting on a wooden bench next to my lawyer while the judge presides over the case ahead of mine. He's focused, stern, all gray-haired authority. My case is called. My lawyer shoots me a look that says, I've got this. Now I'm on the stand, the wall to my right, the judge to my left. I feel trapped, on display. I'm scanning the room for Pat. He's not contesting this divorce. But what if he comes at the last minute? What if he accuses me of making the whole thing up? What if it is all my fault? The judge is asking me questions. I feel incredibly small. I am Dorothy standing before the great Oz. My fate is in his hands. I can't even look at him. I'm looking down at my knees. And then he says it. I can't believe it was that bad. The judge said, I can't believe it was that bad. And I've never forgotten that. That's, that's a, such a harmful statement, isn't it? Yeah, and I, like, I, I've, I, I remember when he said it, I thought, oh my God, he's not going to give me a divorce. He's going to send me back, as if he could send me back, right? I mean, he couldn't. But it was that idea that you kind of feel like you've been hung out to dry because you're being judged. Yes. I went home angry, wondering what kind of judge wouldn't believe me. But eventually a note came in the mail. I got the divorce. And then I tried not to think about it. After it ended, I remember you saying, we made 11 months, that was it. This is my friend Sue. You felt that you had, you had screwed up. It's only been 11 months. Do you know, I was ashamed of that always. And then when I said, you know, oh, I was married younger. Oh, how long were you married? And I'd say, a year. And people really judge you, right? Like, oh, well, it didn't mean anything. You and it judged did- yourself that day you said that to me. Yeah. And I stopped telling people that I'd ever been married. It was just, I just didn't go there. I stopped going there. By this time, I was done living in the same city as Pat. I quit my job in Fredericton and moved west to Alberta, where I landed a job as a TV reporter. It was only when my parents visited a full year after the divorce that they finally heard that Pat had been abusing me. And when you found out, what did you think? Oh, we felt like hell. We felt rotten. We felt rotten because, you know, you were vulnerable, you were all by yourself, and, you know, you were brave to survive. You know, Mom said to me, like, Mom couldn't believe. She said, you? Like, you, Ana Maria? Yeah. Of all people, you? He could, like, 
Nobody could quite believe that somebody could do that to me and yeah. I would let them. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. couldn't either, really. I have to stop myself right there. Did you hear what I just said? Nobody could believe I would let someone do that to me, as if I let him abuse me. But that language, the way I thought of things while the abuse was happening, it's still right there waiting to jump in. I'm still carrying that self-blame. So many of us do that, carry the blame of abuse through so much of our lives without realizing that blame has been imposed on us. For me, that has had long-term consequences. Before I met Pat, of course I had moments of feeling down, feeling blue. But after that year of marriage, well, I explained it to Farzana. You know, when you're a kid and you watch these cartoons and somebody's in a cave and the boulder's rolling toward the cave and then it comes right at the cave and locks them in and so you just see the ball coming and then it everything's black. Mm-hmm. And that would be, for me, what my depression would feel like. And it was something that I could literally feel the boulder coming at me. I could feel it days ahead of time. And this went on for years, off and on, right? Um, like I could feel it and I would say, like, oh, here, it's coming. And then I would just go to someplace very dark. And it wouldn't even be my thoughts that were dark. It would be the life around me just was dark. If you had seen me then at work, somewhere in public, you'd have no idea. But at home alone, it was different. I'd berate myself in front of the mirror, punch myself in the stomach, fall into a crying heap on the floor. Because I would lose my temper on my own sometimes. That I wasn't the person I wanted to be. So being extra hard on yourself. Yeah, and, you know, I I used to think, well, that's good because then I, you know, I double-check things and I'm, you know, like, it's good to be hard on yourself professionally. Mm-hmm. But I'm hard on myself personally. I'm, yeah. um, I want to be this perfect person. And if you ask me what that means, I have no idea because I don't really want to be a perfect person. Um, but, but you might not see sometimes when you're good enough. Yes, yes. Um, And in the back of my head, I always think I could be left again. For long stretches of my life, I felt completely unlovable. I think I did a lot of things to cope um, without realizing I was coping. I think I did a lot of things to cope thinking I didn't need to cope. Mm. Um, Like what? Well, I think by um, really concentrating on my work, that was a coping mechanism. And then it became um, a way of, you know, existing in the world. Because mm-hmm. I would show up at work at like, what I don't know, just after five. Um, and then I would stay. And I really just stayed because I had nowhere to go. Or I thought I didn't. That's how it started my lifelong relationship with my work. In job after job, 
I never turned down an assignment. Once I left a movie theater and my date to cover an oil well blowout. As my career evolved, I got in the habit of hopping on a plane within hours, heading toward a disaster or a conflict zone, with no idea when I'd get back. No one ever questioned my reporting on those big trips. But early on, when I tried to do a story closer to home about domestic violence, my boss hinted I might have a conflict. The details of my divorce had become gossip that followed me. I never did that story. I tried to put my marriage behind me. But when it came to new relationships, I couldn't. Instead, I put up a wall. I found something that I wrote in 96. So by this time I'm in Jerusalem. Hmm. Basically, I just ask myself, well, are, are you choosing to be with people who cannot commit or people who... Um, hmm will not be as close to you as you need them to be because, and I write, because I'm afraid of being trapped by someone who will control me, usurp my personality, not let me grow. I'm still afraid of Pat. Mm. It, it, that, it was the thing that stuck with me. It was, you know, I can't let someone, like, start to build that web around me again. Right. Because you couldn't let it happen again. Yeah. And you weren't sure if you could stop that or catch it in time or... That's right. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It makes total sense. Yeah. You needed. You had a period where you just needed some recovery. I only ever saw Pat in person once after I left the East Coast. I was covering the 1988 federal election and traveling on one of the campaign planes. It was a big assignment, a big deal for me. We landed in Halifax, where the leader did an interview, at the station where Pat and I both worked when we were first married. As I stood around waiting, talking to old colleagues, out of the corner of my eye I saw someone hovering. I turned. It was him. I knew he was working there. Why hadn't I assumed I would see him? I wasn't sure what to do, what to say. I just stared at him. He came toward me, reached out to shake my hand. You're doing really good work, he said. <laughs> Thanks, I said. And that was it. It was the last time we spoke. It was more than enough for me. But there have always been things I've wanted to know. Basic questions that have built up over the years. Why? Why did you do that to me? What were you thinking back then? Couldn't you have just walked away if you were so unhappy with me? Why did you see me as the problem? And I know better than to expect much in the way of satisfying answers from him. There's never really a logical explanation for violence. So, do I need to hear from him to understand what happened to me? To understand the impact of it? No. Do I expect an apology? No. 
And you know what? I don't even want one. After everything I've been through, it would mean nothing to me. But I've spent my career confronting people with power, getting them to account for their actions. It's what I do. And these questions I have aren't going away. I want some answers. Next time on Welcome to Paradise. I'm thinking of going back to find him and ask him to talk to me about what happened and ask him why. Do you think I should? I don't think it will help you at all. Why will you do it, Ana Maria? To bring back memory? It was bad memories anyway. Don't go back there. These people, they don't change. He will be the same person now he was then. If you or someone you know is living with intimate partner violence, you're not alone. There are people who can help. For more information, visit cbc.ca slash WTP resources. Welcome to Paradise is written and produced by me, Anna Maria Tremonti. Sarah Melton is our associate producer. Chris Oak is our story editor. Sound design and additional story editing by Mira Burt-Wintonic. S.K. Robert is our coordinating producer. Our senior producer is Damon Fairless. And the director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. Special thanks to Farzana Doctor. If you'd like to reach out to me directly, visit AnnaMariaTremonti.com. You can follow Welcome to Paradise on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please help others find it by rating and reviewing it, or simply by telling a friend. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.